0: Yeah, this was not a very good episode, and this was not a very good week, (laughs) uh, unfortunately, but uh, we will get to that when we get to Killing Game. Uh, Yeah, this is the uh,
1: episode—this is an episode that, in light of everything that is coming out about, you know, sexual harassment in Hollywood and everything, uh, is a very uncomfortable episode for the messaging it gives.
0: It is and it it does not play well yeah. uh, in the 21st century. It does not play well yeah. in the year 2018. Now, of course, we we do have to say that we are not talking about a, a sexual assault in retrospect. This is a a Yeah. a non-sexual assault. This is a physical assault um that that has no sexual components to it, but of course, I think it is supposed to be a, 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 an analog to a sexual assault situation. Well, let me put it this you know, way.
1: The thing that uh, triggers Seven of Nines, you know, flashback at the beginning of the episode is when he, you know, grabs her. And that is, you know, see, you know that, that whole interaction has a very like, you're a pretty lady, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And he just kind of grabs her body. And there is a point when, you know, the doctor is talking to Seven and she explicitly says, you know, he violated me. I mean that 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 is a very deliberately said word in the episode. It's not, you know, it, it, it's intended to have all of the ramifications that the word has.
0: Which, which, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, is is a word that that crops up in a couple different places yeah. in the episode. It becomes a motif in a sense because that's also the word that Chakotay uses when he's talking to Seven about. Uh, uh, violating Janeway's trust at the end of last week's episode. Hmm. And so, you know, I I don't know. I I think that was probably intentional. I I don't know if we're supposed to read into that, that Seven is just picking up on things and is very susceptible to the the sort of, you know, the the sort of, uh, you know, Susceptibility, I guess, is is the word for mm. it. Um, you know, she she's kind of a gullible. She's she's a little bit uh, naive in a sense. You know, she doesn't have a good handle on herself, her emotions, who she is as a person yet. But the entire episode just makes me very uncomfortable yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: because it's essentially like I really loved about the episode where the doctor immediately, you know. She she says this happened, and he's immediately on her side. He is immediately like, you know, this happened to you. This is terrible. This is, you know, this will not stand. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that, you know, justice is served for this. And he's immediately believing her. Um, and at the end of the episode, the doctor, in a way, makes it all about himself as a G. I really dropped the ball on this one by believing the lady who said that she's been molested. That was stupid of me. How stupid am I? Like... It, it, it's, 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 it, this episode just starts off really strong and really meaningfully, and it just totally shits the bed.
0: You know, I, I don't know that I completely agree with that though, because I think that an, part of it is just how, how far we've come or haven't come yeah. since 1997, 1998. Yeah. And
1: I do recognize and... that part of my watching this episode, it is impossible to c- completely divorce this from current events right now. I do admit
0: that. Yeah, it it, it's completely impossible to do that. But at the same time, this was written by Brian Fuller and Lisa Clank. I mean, Brian Fuller is you know uh, to use the overused term as woke as anybody, I guess, and Lisa Clink is a woman. So this was not written by you know uh, Rapey McMasterson or anything. And I don't know based on a script by idea by Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, I don't know to what degree we're seeing an episode that. Has not aged well. And I don't know if we're seeing an episode that is actually problematic. And, that's and fair. I think it's that tension at the episode's core that I want to discuss because you seem definitely to be coming down on the side of this is a problematic episode. This was a problematic episode, even in 1998. I am kind of on the other side of that where I think that this episode is well meaning. I think that they thought they were doing something very groundbreaking and meaningful. And it doesn't quite and, and what they're actually what they're actually showing in retrospect is exactly how much Stockholm syndrome everyone had around these issues in 1998 in 2008 in 2018 in 1978 i mean you know just name any year you want this has always been the case
1: watching this episode in the historical context yes i can see what they're meaning to say about this and um You know, there are. This has even been mentioned on the X Files a few times about you know repressed memories as having the opportunity, having the ability to be modified in some ways. I mean, if you talk about the Satanic Panic of the nineteen eighties, um, you know, almost all of that was bullshit. Was stuff that was suggested by psychiatrists. Was you know most of the memories of you know kids being captured by satanic cults was not real. That was for people looking for that, and you know. In a way, suggesting these memories. And that's more what this episode is about than an actual assault. And that is true. Um, I'm also going, you know, but again, it's, you know, uh, uh, I know th- there are a lot of people who though, you know, and this is again, true in 1998, true in 2008, true in 2018. Who will say, well, you know, women who accuse people of being sexual assault are just looking for attention, are just misinterpreting things, are, you know, and this episode is an example of a woman who is claiming violation and is just getting caught up in hype and nothing really happened. And that's a little difficult. Again, maybe this is me just not completely being able to, but I guess my point is. Maybe it was innocuous at the time, but now this is an episode that has dated very poorly
0: oh i don't think it was innocuous at at the time at all, and I think it's intention i I think what you're seeing here is a, is a tension between what the episode ostensibly is is trying to uh, uh, is trying to examine an issue that it is trying to to discuss and talk about and comment on. And and the form in which that commentary takes. Because if you swap out Seven of Nine in this episode for any other male main character in this episode, yeah. it's not creepy at all. It's not about sexual assault. It's not about how uh, the patriarchy affects men, women, everybody else. It's not about any of those things. It is a episode that is specifically about the problems of memory regression. And about the issues that that causes, about the witch hunt nature of those sort of things, all of that stuff, right? Because, you know, as, um, I forgot who says it in this episode, but but someone does say that that human memory is, is very unreliable. I think it's Tuvok, yeah. It is Tuvok, yeah, and that is true. Human memory is very unreliable. And that, you know, if you are ever arrested by the police and they say they have an eyewitness to put you at a crime scene, you should keep your fucking mouth shut because uh, more and more, eyewitness testimony is not <laughs> admissible in court for precisely this reason. Um, people don't remember what they think yeah. they see a lot of the time, and people f- miss things that they think they see all the time. I mean, one of those uh, famous videos that makes its rounds on the Internet every once in a while is the uh, the bear, the guy in the bear yeah. seat, going through the basketball, and it asks you to count how many times they pass the basketball, and the first time you watch the video, you don't see the guy in the bear seat dancing through it. Uh, um, and I think that's what this episode is trying to be about, yeah. but... It's it's hampered by the fact that they want to play with the shiny new toy of seven of nine, and I don't know that they realized uh, how many wrinkles that would put into their story.
1: Yeah, and again, you know, it's particularly that, and and I, I do want to get into the cheesecake nature of seven of nine as you know her costuming is, but. You know, this is this would maybe be a little less if this had been a Kess story, for example, because Kess is, you know, because Jennifer Lean is not uh, as defined by her sexuality in her portrayal as Jerry Ryan is, if that makes any sense.
0: It makes total sense to me. I mean, the costuming, the way people even talk about Seven of Nine, uh, she is seen, she is viewed yeah. as a sex object. Now, I maybe this is the opportunity for us to talk about that because I think that's been the elephant in the room for uh, you know ever since her her appearance in the show. Really, yeah. that what is this character? What is she for? Why is she dressed like that? <laughs> frankly, and yes, the show made some technobabble explanations for why she's wearing a cat suit, but at the end of the day. There's no reason why she needs to be wearing a skin-tight catsuit, right?
1: Yeah. Now, um, you know, going from one of the comments on the blog was talking about, you know, how apparently uh, Kate Mulgrew just hated working with her, hated what this character represented. And, uh, you know, I've done some looking up and apparently there were also some resentments going from, you know, Janeway is the captain and in a way kind of the focus and the anchor of the show. But as we've said, you know seven of nine is the shiny toy and suddenly you know she has become the focus of season four for most of it and
0: you know there is which and i and i will say as well that that uh kate mulgrew has apologized for that yeah um you know i've seen her at conventions even where this question has come up and she has apologized to yeah Jerry yeah yeah on stage yeah um you know, she she basically says now that she should not have done that. It had nothing to do with Jerry Ryan specifically yeah. and that it was wrong for her to do that. So. Yeah,
1: um, it's funny because now I am watching all of these scenes where, um, you know, where there, are, there is a lot of tension and partially this is where the storyline is going. But I also wonder if the tension between Janeway and Seven of Nine is coming from the fact that the actresses had a tension between the two of them. Um, I couldn't help but see, you know, Seven of Nine is saying, well, you know, gee, I was, I, 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 saying essentially to our captain, you know, I was raped, and, you know, Kate Mulgrew, the actress, being like, well, I don't give a fuck, like, you, you, you're, you're, you're the sex symbol on the show, like, you, you're asking for it, like, that was almost part of subtext between that, in that scene, again, that's, you know, maybe me reading a little into it, but it is funny how that is coming across, but... I guess what I'm thinking, what I'm finding the the weirdest about Seven of Nine and Harry Kim to a lesser degree um, is that Seven of Nine is, you know, again, the character in the catsuit. You talk to any straight guy who has watched Voyager, they will talk very appreciatively about Seven of Nine. Um, and yet the character is not a sexual character at all. I mean, she is one who is defined by you know her intellect her interest in the astrometrics lab or whatever that is um by her partially by her search for humanity and yes eventually her romantic feelings are going to be part of that because that is you know part of her developing emotions but you know that can be handled well just as for example Bellana's uh ro- growing romantic feelings for Tom Paris aren't derailing the character they are just you know making her a richer character um I mean, the only conversation Seven of Nine has had about sexuality has been that oh, you want to copulate with Harry Kim, where she's almost, you know, she does she only has a detached scientific interest in the subject, right? Like she is not, you know, she is dressed as the sex pod character, but that is not at all who she is. And for that matter, mm-hmm. Har, Harry Kim looks like one of people's sexiest men, and yet, you know, the the show is increasingly making him dweeby, having him have no game, and you know, he is somebody who is not. You know, sleeping with every woman on board. It seems like there is this divide between the production staff wanting to make this a hotter and sexier show and the writers and actors kind of rebelling against that.
0: I I think that's a that's an accurate read on the situation. And and I would take it even one step further than that, because, of course, um, viewing women as sexual objects is is probably outside the scope of this podcast. I mean, this is not a podcast about the history of, of feminism or the patriarchy, but mm-hmm. you know this. You know, suffice it to say, this is a thing that happens, and this is a thing that happens even in Star Trek and even in modern Star Trek. I mean, go to uh, what Deanna Troy was wearing in most yeah. of TNG's run. Now, it wasn't quite as skin tight as what Seven of Nine is wearing. It, you know. And also seven of nine. Um, well, not seven of nine. The actress uh, also is is perhaps um, blessed with some uh, greater physical attributes than uh, Marina Sirtis, is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because part of it too is that like Jerry. I mean, to be blunt about it, Jerry Ryan appears to have large breasts, and her costuming is so designed to accentuate her bust line to an almost extraordinary degree, yeah. and. You know, also there's like some ass crack going on there as well, and it's it is frankly a ridiculous costume, and I think that this is probably the episode for us to call out the ridiculousness of what Seven of Nine is wearing now,
1: and, and that, and, and I guess we also need to make it clear that this costume was in universe designed by the Doctor.
0: Right, right, <laughs> and while well, the Doctor also designed himself a penis, so that kind yeah. of that's in there. Um, not saying the Doctor's penis slot, no, not going there. But the other part of it, too, is that this is a tension that is at the heart of Star Trek in general, where, mm. you know, it, it wants to have it both ways, right? The, the 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 production side of it, Rick Berman and UPN and all those people uh, want to use sex to sell Star Trek Voyager, want to use sex to sell Star Trek in general. But Star Trek, the creative side, doesn't want to do that. And so... They create a character of seven of nine, and they say, "All right, we'll dress her up like you know a, a sex pot. We'll dress her up like a like a forties pinup model, but we're not going to write her like that. We're going to write her as a Star Trek character. Is that satisfactory? Is that squaring the circle appropriately? I don't know. I I would say no, but. I also don't really think it's appropriate for Seven of Nine. I mean, well, I shouldn't say appropriate for Seven of Nine to dress like this, certainly if she wants to dress like this, it's fine. But I think in the context of why they're doing it, that is really the problem.
1: Yeah, it's not as if, for example, you know, I mean, this is something that could even be hand-waved, like, you know, oh, well, this is the most comfortable outfit. You know, I'm not really, I don't really care about clothing. I'm not going to deal with fashion, but... Again, if that's the case, well, it may may make the most sense for Seven of Nine to wear a Starfleet uniform because she's used to, frankly, dressing like everybody else around her, isn't she?
0: Which, which also, like, that's bullshit. And I'm not saying that, you know, I think you're trying to... Uh... You're trying to come up with explanations, yeah. but like tight clothing is not. No, I know. Wait, like, I, if if Seven of Nine was dressing co- for comfort, she'd be wearing pajamas. So, I mean, this is the kind or a of robe. I, you know, I don't know. This
1: is the kind of thing where I could almost see, like, as she goes on, like, you know, I could see the character having a like, wait, why am I wearing this thing? I'm going to wear real clothes, you know, and having a costume change later on. But I assume that doesn't really happen in the show.
0: I don't think so. No, no.
1: So we know, and, but you know, it, it's one thing if she's just given that, and then as part of her development, she, you know, picks a different outfit. But I think that that calling attention to it makes the would have made the earlier stages even grosser.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I mean, you know, moving aside from from all of the seven of nine stuff, though, I, I think that retrospect also is kind of. It's kind of ham-fisted. It's not the best example of either Brian Fuller or Lisa Klink's work you know, Coven is is an asshole. He's written to be a transparent asshole. He's written to be someone that you don't care about. He's he's written to be someone that you find annoying and objectionable, and you want to see him get his comeuppance. You want to see him, you, you believe that he assaults Seven of Nine. And then, of course, as it turns out, he actually didn't assault Seven of Nine, and the whole thing was fabricated, and that's where all the problems come in. But it's done in such a ham-fisted fashion that it's it's so blatantly obvious that the show is trying to set this guy up to get some sort of comeuppance at the end that it just doesn't – well, I shouldn't say comeuppance, you know, really um, the exact opposite of that – that it doesn't work. Like, none of it really works. Like, I don't find this to be an engaging episode to watch.
1: Again, I was waiting for the twist and I – you know, because I had to figure, well, something was done and is the twist that somebody else, you know, violated her, took these this Borg technology – And she's focusing on Coven because he's the one that's close by and she thinks. But, you know, the fact that he is completely innocent when, again, he is, you know, and again, a 2018 read of that sees him grabbing her and pushing her out of the way as he does in the initial scene when she hits him. I I mean, that's, that alone is a problem, him doing that, you know. So it's, I I don't know. Um, And I guess what also, where also the episode falls down is, so at one point they uh, suggest that well the mem you know she's confusing these memories with memories of her time in the Borg right like oh the Borg assimilated people against the will the Borg violated people she is somebody who had done violations to many people during her time in the Borg and now she is developing a sense of empathy and realizing kind of the ramifications of what she had done in her time. And that's a really meaty, interesting thing to get to delve into. And the episode just doesn't.
0: Yeah, it basically just forgets that it brought that question up. and And I think that's really what it comes down to, is that this is an episode that has so many different areas that it's interested in that it, it doesn't really know which one to pick and doesn't really do any of them any yeah. sort of justice whatsoever and at the, si- at the same time has this very disturbing undercurrent all throughout it which it doesn't really seem to realize is there yeah
1: no i don't think the show is you know able again we talk about do i think too much of voyager or do i think too little of it but i don't think voyager is really capable of fully dealing with her sins in the time as the Borg her complicity in that her guilt of that um again she had done she had probably done some horrible things or at least was accessory to horrible things at least uh allowed that to happen and condoned that even in her early days on the ship had you know spoken very appreciatively of her time in the Borg and again now she is now that she is getting some distance from that uh I don't know if the show is properly capable of letting her wrestle with what she has done. And I I,
0: don't think so either, but... And I
1: mean, in, in some ways, it's because, you know, in some ways they do need to gloss over that because we do need to like this character, right? Like, And we do believe that she is given a second chance and that this incarnation of Seven of Nine may you know, would never do those things in this way, you know, is shifting towards good aligned, uh...
0: But I don't know. Well, I think th- I think the implication is that you know once you unplug someone from the Borg, they they may be very psychologically damaged. They they may not have much of an emotional capacity. They may not be very emotionally or f- mature or, or or mentally mature. But they are a different person. They are the person that perhaps they were when they were first assimilated or something like that. And so. You know, the implication being that that Seven of Nine, of course, would not do these things because she is no longer a Borg, but, but at the same time... But then make an episode the, about the issue, that. Well, and the issue with that also is that Star Trek Voyager is not going to be a show to do long-term storytelling about the effects of PTSD.
1: No, I know, but it can also... Again, if the last scene had not been in between the doctor, you know, worrying about everything that he'd done in believing the victim... um. You know, because, again, you know, I thought Seven of Nine was a victim. Well, Seven of Nine was a victim. She was kidnapped as a child. You know, she she is a victim. She is somebody who has, you know, escaped that and who has begun to make a life for herself outside of the victim identity. But that is a part of her background. If the finale scene had been between Seven of Nine and Janeway and had led with the, well, you know, no, you are a different person now. I think you can do it very positively in a very Star Trek way, in a way which is very optimistic and does, you know, allow for Seven of Nine having a second chance now and taking that and running with it because she is. But I think, you know, well, I think that's the elephant in the room that the show is just too leery to address.
0: Well, yeah, I agree with you. And I also think that 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 clarifies one of my major problems with this episode that I had trouble articulating until just now, which is that. Seven of nine is a prop in this episode. There, there, there is nothing about this episode that indicates to me that seven of nine has any agency over what's happening. This is all a plot that is driven by the doctor, is driven by the other people investigating this, is driven by this guy Coven. Seven of nine has nothing to do with any of this, and and seven of nine is act. Everyone is acting like seven. This is seven of nine's fault in a sense, mm. which which is terrible in and of itself on its face, but. It's also terrible because she has no capacity to recognize uh, a false memory, and she. This is not her responsibility. This is her. You know, this. this, She's not a person in this episode, and I think that's primarily an issue with the the ways in which culture in general treats women characters as props. It's not something that Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's not necessarily something that Star Trek Voyager falls into. I think The Next Generation fell into it a lot more. Um, But it's still disappointing when it does that. And that's why I think the last scene is not Seven of Nine. It's the Doctor. Because while Seven of Nine has a lot of screen time in this episode, while the Doctor doesn't have a ton of screen time in this episode, if this is an episode about anybody, this is an episode about the Doctor.
1: Yeah, and... I guess at the end of the day the doctor learns that he needs to take these accusations with a grain of salt. Next to him. And that's a gross message.
0: I don't know that I agree with that at all actually. Okay. I think that what the message is is that the doctor needs to stop assuming hmm. that he knows exactly what he's doing. Like 7 of 9 didn't make these accusations, right? Like she didn't just come to to Captain Janeway and say "Coven assaulted me," right? She had some vague issues and which of course were brought about by the fact that she was accidentally shot by a rifle. And the doctor did some questionable things that he interpreted in a particular way that guided her in a particular way and that created false memories. That's
1: fair. Um and, you know, maybe Deanna Troy you know, questioning her would have come to, you know, this is, you know, him grabbing me reminded me of you know, times the Borg assimilated people and now I'm, you know, maybe she would have gotten to a more correct therapeutic conclusion.
0: Well, yes, I, I I certainly agree with that. I mean, I think that, that if the doctor, um, you know, the doctor basically thinks that he can create a subroutine for himself and, and and everything is, you know, copacetic and he can do whatever he wants. And that is not the case. There is still experience. There is still learning. You know, he doesn't really still have a, a handle on human emotion, and so he's not really in a position to be a psychiatrist I don't think.
1: At least and particularly not for such a severe case. You know, he can probably listen to, you know, somebody, you know, he can probably deal with Balana being, you know, having a bad day and talking her down from that, but you know, something more sensitive, yeah.
0: I I think the one thing that I will say I appreciate about this episode is the the fact that um coven does die i think that that's an example of star trek voyager not doing the cop-out not fixing everything that that this this thing from the doctor does have really severe consequences you know a man died from this and i appreciate that
1: yeah and consequences which you know would have even been extreme even if he had done this you know like his ship yeah his ship even if he was stealing borg technology his ship blowing up is not star trek's idea of justice
0: No, absolutely not. All right, well, let's move on to the killing game. But before we do that, I do want to take an opportunity to let you all know that this podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy what we do, please go to patreon.com slash There are quite a few reward tiers there. If you would like to give us some money each and every month, you can do so. Thank you very much. Okay, well... I liked this episode more than
1: I guess you did.
0: It is an episode that... Does not really improve on a second viewing or a third (laughs) viewing.
1: I could see that. This is like every costumer that Star Trek has done in which, you know, everybody looks really cool in the old, you know, outfits and, you know, it's visually distinct. It's something different. And, you know, there is a little of the camp cheesiness that, you know, we know and love Star Trek for. I mean, this is not a deep episode, right? Like... This is, I don't know if this is the end of the Herosians, um, you know, and obviously next week we will find out, you know, how this all ends, um, but I don't know, just as a, the ga- No,
0: we already knew how World War Two ended.
1: <laughs> um, I don't know, mostly, I, I, as far as I know, it's still going on, but, um. The gang is resistant members in saint Clair, France, and they're dressed in fun outfits, and we get to see, you know, what might have been. And as that, you know, just simple thing, I liked it. It's cool to see Seven of Nine in, you know, as Veronica Lake. It's cool to see, you know, Janeway as Martin Lane and D- Dietrich, you know.
0: I mean, it's well done. The The cast is very game to do it. The, you know, back lot set that is standing in for a small French town or village or whatever is is very well done. I appreciate the fact that the show, this episode doesn't spend 10 or 15 minutes uh, with, oh, my God, the Hirogen are attacking. Raise yeah. the shields. Lower the shields. Shoot them. Don't shoot them. You know, whatever. It just starts off. They've already been captured. Who the hell knows how it happened, when it happened. I yeah, don't it care. Doesn't it doesn't matter. Care. It doesn't matter to the episode. Um, Someone got the drop on Voyager. They've come close enough
1: so many times in the series that, you know, their luck just ran out. Fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I do appreciate the ability the show has demonstrated to tell an ongoing story in an unfolding fashion while still maintaining an episodic nature, which is something that Star Trek Discovery is still struggling with. (laughs) But... Yeah, there's a World War II setting, and all the characters are like vaguely the same, and there's some technobabble about how they don't remember who they are, and the Doctor and Harry Kim are the only ones that are out there in the real world, and some other guys that are just extras.
1: Harry Kim gets to do something. That's nice.
0: Yeah, he gets to do something that's exciting. Um, you know, the episode does, is very smartly constructed in that way where, you know, it starts off, you don't know what's happening. Maybe you think they're just uh, having some sort of adventure and then the herogin appeared, and you're like, "Oh, okay, this is bad." And slowly it unfolds itself, you know, it reveals the Doctor is still out there, which makes sense. And then it reveals that Harry Kim is out in the real world. You know, it doesn't reveal where Tom Paris and Chakotay are until almost the end of the episode. You know, I think that the pacing of it is nice and the mystery element of it is nicely done. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is just Star Trek doing a little bit of a romp and it doesn't have the the depth that I think some of the better ones of these yeah. do. Um, I mean, even something like uh, you know Data's adventures in uh, with Sherlock Holmes or Times Arrow, know, this full of datas. Uh, you know, you could think of a bunch of other ones.
1: Well, you know, part of the you know, again, this reminded me most of Times Arrow, actually, even though you know the cheese, the inherent cheesiness of the concept in Times Arrow, it was very blatant because that's supposed to actually be you know 1800s America and. You know, the 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 Doctor Who-ness of it is obvious there. Bec- and, you know, here, because this is a reconstruction programmed by an alien race who didn't live through it, the kind of theme park nature of it is a lot more acceptable, and I need to appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, a, there's an artificiality to it, which makes sense because it is a yeah. holodeck program. But at the same time, like... I'm not really sure what we're supposed to get out of any of this. I mean, in a certain sense, it's very difficult to to talk about this episode without knowing what comes next because, yeah. you know, what, what this is, is set up. You know, it's it's getting all of the characters in a position to do what? Well, to get the ship back, right? Like, it's yeah. going to be how this ends. I mean, they're going to get Voyager back at the end of the next episode, right? Or will they? I mean, huh. who knows? but yes yeah, they will. The ship blows
1: up, you know, irrevocably and then the rest of the the series is them in escape pods for three more seasons. Um I get, But I I guess what I get out of this is so I I I do appreciate where we get certain characterization of the heroes and you know one of the things I'd said a couple weeks ago I think in Prey. um was that it seems like they're setting up for some parallels between the Borg, the erosion, and species eight four seven, two, or whatever they are um and I think here they're made more explicit um there is the one bit where the commander is saying like um, you know you have we have to understand our prey, and you know we're doing this, and you know this seems like a very moral very elaborate way to understand your prey, and certainly the you know, his underling has made his point. You know, I, I, I'm I with the underling when he said, like, you've made your point. We've understood what we understand about them. Let's just kill them. Come on. Um, but in a way, they're trying to, assi- the, the Herosians are trying to assimilate in their own way, aren't they? Um, and this is kind of their method for understanding their prey so that they can learn from them. They feel that there is some kind of spiritual perfection to be learned from the hunt, um, Again, maybe not the deepest theme, but it is there,
0: yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because i I was thinking that the herojin stuff is kind of not working for me at all, and the more they reveal about the herojin, the more they invite me to think about exactly how little this makes sense,
1: yeah, and I mean that but that is kind of part of the commander's point like our society makes he is essentially saying our society makes no sense we're just constantly on the hunt like we need a bunch of us to, to learn farming and you know some of us need to learn medicine and you know all of that and yes we can still have the hunt and we'll think you know we'll essentially create holodeck preserves and that's where we hunt but this whole going from place to place and doing this doesn't work anymore
0: yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I'm, what I'm really coming around to is like, what, what are we supposed to think the Herogen actually are? I mean, they, they do say that they don't have a homeworld anymore in a previous episode, so okay, we know that whether it was destroyed or whatever. Um, I mean, it's kind of a meaningless statement on its face because, as I said before, they, they have to come from yeah. somewhere. So, assumingly, they had a homeworld at some point, but okay, so. The Herojan homeworld was destroyed. There's very few of them left. We're talking about some sort of, you know, 12 colonies, Battlestar Galactica thing or something. I don't know. I mean, maybe there and is so a little
1: bit of a uh, – I mean, I'm also remembering Independence Day was around this time, and those aliens, you know, just kind of went from planet to planet stealing resources. There could be some influence of that. You know, they're just going hunting from area to area because they hunted everything on their planet to extinction.
0: But that's, I guess. I don't know. But that's fanning. But, like, but yeah. that, But that's the thing is what it gets to me, though, is that um, we don't really know how many Hirogen there are. There seem to be a few of them. They seem to be few in number because if they're going to disappear in a thousand years, there's not that many of them. Um, there can't be like 10 billion of them out there or anything. I mean, there's no possible way that could ever work. And so I guess this guy is supposed to be some sort of visionary. But, like, I don't know what his name is. Yeah. Like this is the problem, is it? Like I don't, I'm, I have, I don't have trouble telling the Herogen apart, but I, but I have trouble, kind of with the show's conception of them, which is like, who are these people? What are they doing? Why are they doing this? And if you're going to invite these questions, you better have good, well thought out answers. And I don't feel like the show does.
1: Yeah, the, you know, they, they, they say, you know, we have no civilization, and I think Voyager thinks that's enough to say, but. They haven't really thought about what the culture of a cultureless people is, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, but then also, like, last week when Tuvok was talking about them, he said that all of their culture and art was predicated on the hunt. Yeah. Is he talking about, like, ancient Hirochan art? I don't know. And, you know, too, the thing is, like, a
1: hunter-gatherer society is a thing, right? Like, that is a civilization. And maybe it's one that they're trying to imply isn't sustainable anymore. And you know, I guess that's where they're going with this. But I don't know. Like, it, it, well, you know, they
0: they wouldn't be hunter gatherers; they would just be hunters. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, your point is taken. I mean, certainly there there is a way to to have a culture and have a society that is not. What we would envision it to be i mean i I think that we're just supposed to envision that there's you know maybe a hundred thousand herojan out there flying around on ships and they kill aliens, and that's what they do. And this guy is some sort of, you know, heroian visionary, and he's out there saying, "No, we need more than this, and we need to reestablish a culture, and we need to reestablish a society and government, and we can't just be lone wolves and, you know, going around in packs and and of twos and threes and fours, uh, hunting prey. We need to settle and start farming, and I don't know, like make TV shows. But I mean, this is the this is the problem. This is a problem sometimes when you.
1: Because, like this, you know, in the early Predator movies, this is not a problem. Like you have, oh, it's a scary species; they hunt, and that's what they do, and that's enough for it, right? Like because all it is supposed to be is just two hours with a boogeyman. Um, in the, you know, and that's I think where the Herosians are initially coming from. But the more time you spend with them, the more you have to characterize, and the more, uh, the it's it's a concept that doesn't get supported into a larger context.
0: Well, yeah, certainly. And I think the other thing about it too is that they obviously had a, a very extensive plan for the Herojin because these episodes are, are coming up one after another. Like, you know, the, the introduction of the Herojin was only like four episodes ago. So, yeah. you know, I, I think you could certainly make an argument for the Herojin developing organically over time if this had been their fourth appearance in three seasons or something like that, but it's not. So they obviously yeah. wanted to make them... A, a major antagonist for this half of the fourth season. And if that's the case, they didn't do a very good job of actually planning out what the Herogen were going to be like. Yeah. It just and, seems a little half assed to me.
1: And that's, you know, I'm actually forgetting now. I'm remembering that. How are the Herogen introduced by this interstellar relay network of communication, which stretched to the alpha quadrant. Like, This is a long-traveled species, which does have some pretty impressive technology.
0: Well, I think the implication there is that they didn't build that. But yeah, I mean, they still know how to use it. Okay. Well, leaving the Hirogen aside, uh, the World War II stuff, again, it's fine. But I do appreciate... I mean, there's a couple things I appreciate it. Um, That Seven of Nine and Janeway, their respective characters in the holodeck program, are still at odds with each other. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that is played very nicely, and I think that that tension is there, of course, because both actors are playing the tension very well, and the and the writing staff is picking up on that. Well, because they're I not playing the tension, yeah. <laughs> I also don't know if that is supposed to indicate that they kind of remember who they are, even if they don't quite remember who they are. At least they remember sort of, like, their emotional uh, relationships to each other.
1: Um. I mean, for you know, pretty much all of the characters are who they are with who they would be in this setting. I mean, Janeway is owns this cafe and is planning the uh, you know resistance stuff. Uh, Neelix is very into food and wine, and you know, tr- being you know, knowing everybody, and you know, Paris is a brave little soldier. You know, Chicote is you know, pl- like everybody does have elements of their actual character there, so. Yeah, it does make sense they would still have that. Uh 7 of 9 is somebody who is, you know, tolerantly going through the role she has to do while waiting to blow stuff up, frankly.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I mean, there's also some some nice parallels there between, you know, the Resistance storyline in the holodeck and uh, the yeah. the Resistance storyline on Voyager with the Doctor and, and, and Harry Kim having to sneak around to, to get Seven of Nine released from this neural inhibitor thing. You know, it's all very nicely constructed. I mean, I don't have a problem with the way the episode is constructed. It's a nice little piece of work on a plotting level, but it's just those larger things about it that don't make a ton of sense to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. Um, I am surprised that they made the Nazis actual Nazis. I thought they were going to kind of, you know, step around that. But, you know, we see swastikas and all of that, and there is Hail Hitler in that. I was a little surprised at that, but... Why? I don't know. Like like how um, Q and the Grey, you know, made it about the Civil War, but it's not really about the Civil War. Like... I thought they were going to have Nazis but not actually Nazis.
0: If that makes sense. Um I mean it kind of makes sense but it kind of doesn't. I don't know why you would think that because well, like the Civil War is misunderstood by a vast majority of Americans so I'm not super surprised at how they handle that in The Queue and the Gray whereas the Nazis are pretty much still the boogeyman of the entire western world 80 years later. So Yeah, fair. And I, I guess, I mean, I don't know if you're supposed to read anything into the Hirogen trying to find a purpose when, you know, we're looking at one of the greatest triumphs of good over evil, quote unquote, uh, that the human civilization, human race has ever produced. You know, I, I don't know if any of that is really supposed to be in there. I mean, is, you know, why why are the Hirogen picking World War II, for instance? I mean, who knows, really? Um, it just seems like they're excited by the prospect of, of a big battle. Uh yeah. Does it make a ton of sense that the explosion would blow a hole in, like, five decks of the ship? I mean, all of these kind of things are just – the more you think about it, the less it makes sense. And yeah. maybe we should just stop thinking about it because we're going to destroy it for everybody else. Aww. I um I did want to mention briefly though that that Roxanne Dawson's pregnancy her her real pregnancy okay. makes an appearance in this episode I and uh, I did like how they I did like how they they uh, wrote that into this episode because they've been doing a pretty difficult job of hiding it in the past few weeks
1: I I was wondering if you know Balana is actually pregnant at this point like I, I was curious about that but.
0: Well, they would st- no, yeah. Oh, you mean like if they like, were hinting that the fact that Bellana was pregnant?
1: Yeah, like you know, we, in in other words, like this is how they ultimately do the reveal. They get out of the holodeck, and she's still pregnant. And then Tom's like, "Well, our baby." Da 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 da. I don't.
0: They must be in that holodeck for a really long time <laughs> if she wasn't showing, and then suddenly was showing though. Fair enough. I think I have to remind the listeners that Richard doesn't always quite understand how pregnancy works. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, if you pray to God, the stork will get a baby from the cabbage patch and uh, put it in the airlock.
0: That's correct. That's correct. All right. Well, I think that's about all we can say about The Killing Game. If you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, as I said earlier, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast tuning in we are talking about the x-files season four finale this week in two days so go over to tuninginshow.com to check that out facebook twitter instagram we are there tuning in show is our username in all those places and as always please leave us an apple podcast review for this podcast it is the best way for new people to find the show all right next week we are talking about the killing game part two and vis-a-vis